This evening as well, I'd like you first to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, and then we'll turn to the text most directly in front of us from Romans 11. First, Isaiah chapter 59. This might also be a case in which you put a piece of your bulletin in that section so we can come back to it before the evening's over. Isaiah 59, I'll read the entire chapter, beginning then, of course, with verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. If made their roads crooked, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then... 
His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then turn, if you would, over to Romans chapter 11. And I'll simply read verses 25 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the Word of God. Amen. We've been exploring the glories of Paul's 11th chapter in Romans. And as we've done so, I'll not blame you if you have had an unfamiliar sense settle over you that we have somehow wandered into the study of eschatology. In other words, that we have happened upon a portion of Scripture that predicts the future. That is at least the popular use of the word eschatology. Something that is concrete and historical and that is predicted in inspired Scripture. Something that when it is fulfilled, you'll know it will be something you'll either see or read about in newspapers and the like. And if this expression, among others in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, means what we've been saying it means, well, that's certainly eschatology. Even if you know very little about the study of eschatology, you are, I'm sure, aware that Christians have differed on the many parts of eschatology. And that's true of the subject that we've been taking up, the restoration of the nation of Israel to salvation. Uh, you should know, and we'll take up for a few moments, the fact that there are some who disagree 
that Paul in Romans 11, more particularly in Paul in Romans 11, verse 25, is in fact predicting something as dramatic as a vast majority of Israel, that is of Jewish people, turning one day in the future back to God in Christ. Some have not seen that in what Paul's saying. They understand Paul to be saying something different and something, we might say, not quite as dramatic as that. For an example, in verse 26, there are those who see the word Israel in a different sense than what you have heard from this pulpit recently. Israel is not, uh, some would judge, being used by Paul in Romans 11, verse 26, to refer to the physical descendants of Abraham. But rather, Israel should be, in effect, in quotes, Israel is being used to refer to the spiritual Israel of God. Those that he has predestined and chosen to salvation. In other words, that Israel refers to the elect. Some say the elect within national Israel. Some just say the elect in general. But the concept is very similar. And, of course, that makes for a very different reading of Paul. It leaves us without a clear sense of what, if any, future the Jewish people have in God's saving purposes. And it makes a great difference in terms of what Paul is doing as he comes to the concluding section of the theology portion of Romans. Now, there is plausibility to this perspective. And the plausibility to it is simply due to the fact that Paul does speak of Israel in other places just that way. And all Israel, the elect of God, will be saved is plausible, a plausible reading of the passage because, for example, early in Romans, verse, chapter 2, verse 28, Paul had said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. When Paul says that, he's doing something theologically creative. He's saying, look, there's Jews and there's Jews. And you're not a Jew just because you're one outwardly. Jewishness and he then goes on to speak of it in a spiritual sense. He does the same thing in another epistle, Philippians 3. And he speaks there of our, ourselves being the real circumcision. There he's, as it were, redefining circumcision in spiritual terms. Galatians 6, he calls the church the Israel of God. Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, if they have faith in Christ, they're the Israel of God. And when Paul speaks that way, he's speaking in a way that those who have seen, in terms of covenant theology, a unity between the New Testament church and the Old Testament church, he's speaking in such a way that makes us covenant theologians very pleased, very excited. We think we understand what he's doing there. God has not now got two different tracks of salvation. No, there's only one way of salvation. There's always only been one way. And there will always only be one way. It's through Jesus Christ. And what we have experienced in the New Testament age is our being united with all those who put their faith in Christ in one body, the church. And that can be described in spiritual terms, as the Israel of God. So some have said that's how Paul is speaking in verse 26. Now, I want to give you a couple of reasons why that is not the case, why that's a mistaken view of what Paul is doing. And then I'm going to come to the third thing, which is really the thing that I want most to talk about. 
this evening. It has to do with Paul's quoting Isaiah chapter 59. But there are two reasons before I come to that why I have not brought to you the scriptures interpreted that way. And the first is the most basic rule of hermeneutics or interpretation, and that is to look at the context first in order to understand the meaning of a specific word. And Israel, the word Israel, throughout the chapter has very consistently referred to the literal Israel, the Jewish people of God. You recognize, I hope by now, that in this chapter, as well as in chapters 9 and 10, Paul is virtually obsessed with the fate of those he calls his countrymen, his brothers according to the flesh. And if you'd like to keep your eye running down through chapter 11, you'll see how many times the word Israel appears and how it is consistently, without exception in chapter 11, referring to the literal Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham. He starts the chapter by saying, I ask that as God rejected his people, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite. And he's speaking there of Jewishness. He goes on in verse 7 to use the word Israel. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. No one denies. He's speaking there of the nation of Israel. Again, as he uses the word. In verse 11, he asks the question, have they stumbled in order that they might fall? And it's very clear that as he speaks there, he's again speaking of Israel because he goes on to contrast Gentiles with Israel. And he means Israel in the ethnic sense of the word. In verse 12, he goes on to speak of Israel's trespass, meaning riches for the Gentiles. And so he continues to have these two categories of people and so much more their inclusion will be riches for the world. In a longer section, verse 17, all the way to 24, he's using the analogy of branches on a vine. And there again, he's very much thinking of two kinds of people, Israel and the Gentiles. Israel's like the natural branches that have been cut off, but will inevitably be grafted back in again. Getting closer to our text, verse 25, he uses the word Israel again. And again, no one is unclear on this point. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's very clear Paul is speaking of his countrymen yet again. And it's on the heels of saying that, that he says, and so all Israel will be saved. He goes on to speak in verse 28 of Israel, not now by name. He refers to them as they. They are enemies of God for your sake. But you know who he's talking about. He continues to speak of the Jews. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So Paul could certainly speak of the elect from all eternity as the Israel of God. He could speak of Israel figuratively. He does elsewhere. But the point that I'm simply trying to make here is if he's doing so here, he's left us with absolutely no hint of that. And in fact, everything else to, to the contrary, he is speaking so consistently and showing such a clear obsession with what is the future of his countrymen he gives us not only no indication he's changed the meaning of the word, he continues to give us reason that he, to think he's speaking of his countrymen. One commentator says this would be a kind of exegetical lurching about that we would not expect of Paul and 
Professor Murray calls it nothing less than exegetical violence to take verse 26 and its reference to Israel in a way that is found nowhere else in the chapter. Brothers and sisters, I'm making the point about verse 26. But let me say, one could take out verses 25, 26, and 27. And if you took that out of your Bible, if you didn't even think about that anymore, 25, 26, and 27, you would ruin the development of Paul's thought, the climax, as I'm about to say, of Paul's thinking. You would ruin the poetry of the passage, but you would take nothing from the eschatology because everything that he says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved, he has said in other ways, in other parts of the passage. We've seen that already. Let me give you a second reason, trying to hurry on to the point I want to make, thirdly. Second reason that we are to understand Paul as speaking of the salvation of the Jews is that anything else entails Paul revealing a mystery that is a stunning anticlimax. Anything else entails Paul revealing a mystery that is a stunning anticlimax. That expression is not my own, but I found it very choice. We looked at chapter 11. Let's back up a minute. And whether you want to, again, be following along 9, 10, 11, or just listen, this is by way of review. There, is, there has been like a wave building in Paul's thought from beginning at verse 9. There's been like a wave building, 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 ready for something climactic at the end of chapter 11. Let me give you a sense of the flow of that. He starts out chapter 9 saying, I am in unceasing anguish about the current state of my brothers. According to the flesh, they have the adoption, they have the glory, they have the covenants, they have the promises, yet they've been cut off from God. That's how chapter 9 begins. He goes on in that chapter to say, has God's word failed? No, it has not failed. And the proof of that is that there are still those within Israel that he's doing a work in. There is a remnant within Israel. And then famously, Paul stops, as it were, in his tracks and says, I anticipate an objection. I anticipate someone saying, how can God do this and be just? And he shuts that person down, that questioner. He says, who are you, O man? God has always chosen those to whom he will show favor, those to whom he will show mercy. And he says, this is the testimony of the prophets ever since the beginning. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago, Paul could have stopped there. I wish that I could be in the place of the Jews. I wish that somehow there could be this arrangement where I would suffer their fate and they would receive my blessings. I wish that that would be the case. But God's Word hasn't failed because He's chosen some, a small number, but some among them. And that is proof that He is continuing to do work among them. He could have stopped right there. But He doesn't. He continues. He presses on. In chapter 10, he says, My prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. His hope hasn't died. And he goes on to meditate for some length in chapter 10 about the fact that now Jew and Gentile can be saved. And it's equally open to both. Anyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. He meditates on that for some length in chapter 10. 
And then he comes to chapter 11 and he says, I, in effect, I know that God has not rejected his people. Whether in the days of Elijah or in the days now, it's clear from that which he is doing that he's not rejected them. There is still a remnant. And though there is some that have been hardened, this will not last forever. So he comes to verse 11 of chapter 11. Have they as a nation fallen for good, never to rise? And we saw that the tenth may denoita, the tenth and the last of those may it never be's that Paul utters is found there in verse 11. Has God rejected his people or rather have they fallen so as never to rise? May genoita. And then here's the full height of the climax. He says, listen carefully. Listen to me. By Israel's sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But by the Gentile salvation, so will salvation come to the Jews. This is a mystery that I want you to understand. Yes, Israel's been hardened, but it is only partial, and it is only until the Gentiles are saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is, if Israel means Israel, if it means the Jewish people, then this is true climax. This is the point that Paul has been leading us to in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God, though in surprising ways, in ways that he calls a mystery. This is nonetheless the climax of his argument thus far in the book of Romans. But if Israel is simply making a statement that all the elect will be saved, And Paul has been building all this time to an obvious, even irrelevant point. I say obvious because that's a truism. Everybody knows that God will save the elect. Everybody knows that. It's everybody else that's the question. And this is far from something that qualifies as a mystery. Here's how Professor Murray puts it. While it is true that all the elect of Israel, the true Israel, will be saved, this is so necessary and patent a truth that to assert the same here would have no particular relevance to what is the Apostle's governing interest in this section of the epistle. Here's how I'll put it to you. These are not Professor Murray's words. These are my words. In Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul begins with agony and he ends with ecstasy. That is on the surface of the text. He begins with agony. He ends with ecstasy. His agony is about the real flesh and blood perishing Jews with whom he grew up and studied in the synagogues with. And the question of God's faithfulness in light of his promises to their father of the flesh, Abraham, is what's of such pressing concern to him. That's his agony. And his ecstasy at the end of Romans 9 through 11 is about the future of those flesh and blood Jews and the unspeakably surprising but wonderful and glorious way that God shows his righteousness in bringing about their salvation after all. So because of the context and the use of the word Israel, And because of the whole argument Paul has been making, 
I've set before you as I have. Romans 11 reveals to us something about the future. In that sense, yes, we are talking eschatology. We're talking about what God has committed himself to do in our world. And when he does it, you will know it if you live on the earth in those days. You can't study eschatology without getting into a little bit of this kind of roll up your sleeves and work. But there's one more reason to think that when Paul speaks of all Israel being saved, he's talking about Israel. That guy whose name was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and all of his descendants called by his name, the grandson of Abraham, with whom God renewed his covenant, his Abrahamic covenant. That other reason has to do with Paul's very characteristic way of cinching a point by quoting the Bible. After saying what he does in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved, he reaches for the Scriptures. And he quotes from Isaiah. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, we read a large portion of Isaiah a moment ago, a whole chapter, but I have to tell you that what Paul is doing in quoting from Isaiah is something that is more complex than just lifting one little verse or phrase out of Isaiah. Uh, Some people, like Charles Hodge, believe that he's not actually quoting one particular passage. He's actually giving the sense of several Old Testament passages. That's Hodge's view, because what Paul quotes doesn't line up exactly with any one portion of the Old Testament. But most have seen, since Hodge's day, that he does in particular have Isaiah's passages in mind, and probably two, one of them most significant, found in Isaiah 59, which we read a moment ago. Do you remember last week when I said to you, you may, you may give yourself permission to read the Old Testament as in fact saying what it sounds like it says, that God's going to do something wonderful for the people of Israel. Well, that is essentially what Paul is doing as he appeals to a major component of the Old Testament. And so here's the third point that I'm making. It's this major component of the Old Testament prophecy that also underscores this glorious future for Israel. And that is this. Nothing but a comprehensive, glorious restoration of the Jewish people will satisfy the prophetic expectations of the Old Testament. Nothing less than a glorious, comprehensive restoration of the Jewish people will satisfy the prophetic expectations of the Old Testament. As you turn back to Isaiah 59, let me remind you, in a summary way, this is what Old Testament prophecy sounds like. It sounds like these four parts. It sounds like, Warning by God to his people against unbelief and rebellion. Or the consequences will follow. That's one part. It's 
Israel being told, you're suffering now because of your sin and disobedience. That's another part. It's, third part, God defending Himself. Saying, you have had this coming to you and I am only acting in keeping with my word. I am a just and holy God. But there's this fourth part. And you just read Rome, get out in your car and drive through the Old Testament. You'll get these four parts in various measures throughout the Old Testament. The fourth part is this. But God will not abandon his people forever. He will turn their hearts to himself and bless them. Now, all four of those parts are in the passage, the context within which Paul quotes from Isaiah. Chapter 58, which we didn't read, is one long warning against unbelief and rebellion, that first part. He accuses Israel of, for example, in verse 3, saying, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And he gives them the answer, Because in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And he goes on to say, This is the greatest of hypocrisy. You fast before me in forms of religious devotion, but then you... Turn and show a lack of mercy and kindness to your countrymen. That's that first part, warning them against their rebellion. In chapter 59, as he begins, he explains to them why they're suffering and being humiliated. It's because of their sin. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. As chapter 59 goes on, it opens up this third element where God defends himself before his people. Verse 12, we read, for our transgressions. Now, this is the prophet speaking on behalf of the people. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. But then in verse 16, there's a transition. This is nearing the place where Paul quotes from Isaiah. And in verse 16, we have a record of God in that fourth part that I just outlined for you. God saying to his people, but I will not abandon you forever. That's where we're told the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And then it describes the Lord coming to Israel, coming like a warrior. And we're told in verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That's the passage that Paul is primarily quoting in Romans chapter 11. Now, if you saw the passage in Romans 11, it reads a little differently. It reads, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, whereas Isaiah had said, He will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Paul seems to be doing something with the text as he quotes it. Again, this is why Hodge says it's not an exact quote. He's summing up various parts. Pardon me. 
uh, Paul seems to be doing something very intentional here. The prophet Isaiah is making this point. He's emphasizing, if you will, the responsibility of man. He says, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, their Redeemer will come. The Apostle Paul, in quoting him, is emphasizing the sovereignty of God. That is, He, God, will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Isaiah hasn't misunderstood where repentance comes from because in the next verse, verse 61, Isaiah says, My spirit that is upon you shall not depart from you. What Paul is doing, brothers and sisters, is he's simply reminding us in this quote from Isaiah that's representative of large portions of Old Testament prophecy. He's simply reminding us that it is the essence of the new covenant that God himself will overcome in the hearts of his people all obstacles. That's the essence of the new covenant. That the people of God are hard-hearted and in the new covenant he will change that. They are stubborn and rebellious, but in the new covenant he will send his spirit and will overcome their stubbornness and their rebellion. Paul is using that to demonstrate that the hard-heartedness of Israel in rejecting the Messiah will not be the last word. Because God, in His covenant ways, is always the one who has the last word. I want you to turn to another New Covenant passage that we love very much and read it in light of this. Jeremiah 31. We love this so much because we recognize that we live in the days in which this is being fulfilled. This is a prophecy of the New Covenant. But who... For whom is this covenant? I ask that question as I read from verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you hear God? Not only is he saying, look, I'm not standing for this hardness of heart. I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to bulldoze the hardness of heart. I'm going to put my law in your heart by the Spirit. That is a unique promise of the new covenant. But who is this said to? It's said to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not as if the old covenant was for the Jews, the new covenant's for Gentiles. We can sometimes slip into that way of thinking. No, 
Both covenants were for Israel, Judah. Have we Gentiles become partakers in that covenant with Israel, with Judah? Yes, gloriously so. Have the Jews in large part failed to receive the salvation of the new covenant? Yes, tragically so. But that doesn't change the fact that salvation is of the Jews. And it underscores that so long as the Jews are not receiving the blessings of the new covenant, the purposes of that covenant have yet to be fulfilled. Here's how F.F. Bruce puts it. The new covenant will not be completed until it embraces the people of the old covenant. So Paul is, in Romans 11, impressed with the fact that for all that has been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ about those Old Testament prophecies, for all that has been fulfilled and much has been fulfilled, those prophecies are too much related to the descendants of Abraham. And they're too full and glorious in terms of that future, the future for that nation, to have all been fulfilled. And so he says, at the climax of his argument, all Israel will be saved, for it is said by the prophets, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And in my Bibles, in my Bible, chapter 60 of Isaiah has this as its heading. The future glory of Israel. As you have occasion, read Isaiah 60 in light of what Paul has done in quoting from Isaiah 59. Here again is Charles Hodge. The apostle teaches that the deliverance promised of old and to which the prophet Isaiah referred in the passage above cited included much more than the conversion of the comparatively few Jews who believed in Christ at His first coming. The full accomplishment of the promise that He should turn away ungodliness from Jacob contemplated the conversion of the whole nation as such to the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, that is why I say to you, nothing but a comprehensive, glorious restoration of the Jewish people will satisfy the prophetic expectations of the Old Testament. You read your Old Testaments, it sure sounds like it's saying that. And Paul confirms to you, that's what it's saying. As I conclude this evening, not preaching from Romans 11, but conclude this evening's sermon, let me point out what has not been settled since we are rolling up our sleeves and doing eschatology. What we have not settled is, for example, whether this glorious restoration of the nation of Israel will be in the land that God originally gave to Abraham. As I judge it, the Apostle Paul does not address that issue in Romans 11. Our Puritan fathers, though they are all but unanimous on the point, the main point I've been making about the restoration of Israel, they actually differ among themselves on that point, whether it will include their restoration to the land in some future day. Neither have we come to any conclusions about when this is going to take place. Will it take place soon? 
Are the signs of the times making obvious that this will take place soon? We've not ventured into that territory. It's possible that it's possible that Paul's expectation, for he was but a man, his writings are inspired and inerrant, but he himself is not. It's possible the Apostle Paul had a hope that it would be sooner than 2,000 years. That's possible. We know it was not God's plan to do so sooner than 2,000 years. And in particular, we haven't settled this question. What will be the relationship of this glorious restoration of the nation of Israel to Christ to His second coming? Will it happen before He comes? Will it happen after? You'll not be surprised when I tell you that our fathers have disagreed on that point as well. Those are things Romans 11 may may be inferring some things, but is not clear. And so, we save those questions. Can't do it all at once. But here's what we have seen. Paul stakes a claim on this truth. This is the mystery. The rejection of the Messiah by the Jews is not the final word in the plan of God. The Apostle Paul, himself a Jew of Jews, envisions a time in history when the vast majority of the Jews will have the veil removed from their eyes. The hardening of God in their hearts will be lifted and they will receive their king. Samuel Rutherford waxes poetic on this point. Oh, to see the sight next to Christ's coming in the clouds, the most joyful. Our elder brethren, the Jews, And Christ falling upon one another's necks and kissing each other. I want to venture a a very simple, crayon simple observation that will be relevant to our studies of eschatology as we go forward. It's simple. I've been gripped by it. God may indeed surprise us in what he does in history. But he will not disappoint. There is much that he did that was surprising in relation to our Lord's first advent. But as he himself has raised our expectations in Holy Scripture about what He will do, you can be assured that you will not be disappointed if you wait upon Him. This hope of a glorious restoration of the nation of Israel is endemic to the Old Testament prophets. And Paul does not write Romans 1-11 through working us slowly and patiently, carefully, in order to let us down easy. 
It's not going to happen. It's the mystery. It's not going to happen. He doesn't do that. He takes that expectation of the Old Testament for the descendants of Abraham and he upholds that expectation. He trumpets that expectation. And as the passage concludes, he is lost in wonder at how God, in surprising ways to be sure, will fulfill every expectation. He Himself is raised in us. It occurred to me this afternoon, thinking of these things, I heard and scratched it down like this. If God did not give up on the human race, when Adam and his descendants with him fell into rebellion and turned against him, if he did not give up on the human race, why would we think that he would give up on the Hebrew race? When Abraham's descendants rebelled, you've come to think that's not like God the God of Israel. And it is not going too far, I would judge, to say that for Paul, if God has in fact walked away from the Hebrew race, then you have no reason for confidence for the human race. That is why Paul is in agony, but that is why Paul ends on such a note of ecstasy. God will be faithful and all Israel will be saved according to the Scriptures. Amen.